0: Hey, welcome to First Chapter Friday, where I read the first chapters of books and hope to get you interested in reading the rest of them. This week, um, in honor of Halloween approaching, I'm going to read two ch- beginning chapters from two scary books. They're for middle school or um, upper elementary, if you're ready for some creepiness. Okay, um, the f- first one is The Streaming Staircase by Jonathan Stroud. It's in the Lockwood and Company series. Here is what it says on the back of the book. A sinister problem has occurred in London. All nature of ghosts, haunts, spirits, and specters are appearing throughout the city, and they aren't exactly friendly. Only young people have the psychic abilities required to see and eradicate these supernatural foes. Many different psychic investigation agencies have cropped up to handle the dangerous work, and they're in fierce competition for business. In The Screaming Staircase, the plucky and talented Lucy Carlyle teams up with Anthony Lockwood, the charismatic leader of Lockwood and Company, a small agency that runs independent of any adult supervision. After an assignment leads to both a grisly discovery and a disastrous end, Lucy, Anthony, and their sarcastic colleague, George, are forced to take part in the perilous investigation of Combe Carey Hall, one of the most haunted houses in England. Will Lockwood and Company survive the hall's legendary screaming staircase and red room to see another day? The second book will be Vampire Plagues, London, 1850. Uh, This is also part of a series, um, but it's the first. And it's by Sebastian Rook. Twelve-year-old Jack Harkett is a street urchin living on the London docks. So when a merchant ship sails into port port at twilight Jack recognizes it for what it is, an opportunity. But Jack has never seen a ship quite like this one. Aside from a flock of enormous black bats that flies from its hull, there's only one living soul on board, a young stowaway named Benedict Cole. Jack and the wealthy, educated Ben have little in common. But once Jack hears Ben's hair-raising story of an ill-fated expedition to Mexico and the strange sickness that's followed him back The two boys find themselves on the same side of a deadly struggle. With no one to turn to, and nothing to rely on but their wits, they face a plague the likes of which London has never seen. Okay, I'll start with Lockwood. Screaming Staircase. This is the first chapter of The Screaming Staircase by Jonathan Stroud. The Screaming Staircase is the first book in the Lockwood and Company series of um of five books. So the screaming staircase starts like this. Chapter one. Of the first few hauntings I investigated with Lockwood and company, I intend to say little. In part to protect the identity of the victims, in part because of the gruesome nature of the incidents, but mainly because, in a variety of ingenious ways, we succeeded in messing them all up. There, I've admitted it. Not a single one of those early cases ended as neatly as we'd have wished. Yes, the Mortlake horror was driven out, but only as far as Richmond Park, where even now it stalks by night among the silent trees. Yes, both the gray specter of Aldgate and the entity known as the Clattering Bones were destroyed, but not before several further, and I now think unnecessary, deaths. As for the creeping shadow that haunted young Mrs. Andrews, to the imperilment of her sanity and her hemline. Wherever she may continue to wander in the world, poor thing, there it follows too. So it was not exactly an unblemished record that we took with us, Lockwood and I, when we walked up the path to 62 Sheen Road on that misty autumn afternoon and briskly rang the bell. We stood on the doorstep with our backs to the muffled traffic, and Lockwood's gloved right hand clasped upon the bell pole. Deep in the house, the echoes faded. I gazed at the door, at the small sun blisters on the varnish and the scuffs on the letterbox, at the four diamond panes of frosted glass that showed nothing beyond except for darkness. The porch had a forlorn and unused air, its corners choked with the same sodden beech leaves that littered the path and lawn. Okay, I said. Remember our new rules. Don't blab about everything you see. Don't speculate openly about who killed who, how, or when. And above all, don't impersonate the client. Please. It never goes down well. That's an awful lot of don'ts, Lucy, Lockwood said. I've plenty more. You know I've got an excellent ear for accents. I copy people without thinking. Fine. Copy them quietly after the event. Not loudly, not in front of them, and particularly not when they're a six-foot-six Irish stock worker with a speech impediment, and we're a good half-mile from the public road. Yes, he was really quite nimble for his size, Lockwood said. Still, the chase kept us fit. Sense anything? Not yet, but I'm hardly likely to out here. You? He let go of the bell-pull and made some minor adjustment to the collar of his coat. "'Oddly enough, I have. "'There was a death in the yard sometime in the last few hours. "'Under that laurel halfway up the path. "'I assume you're going to tell me it's only a smallish glow?' "'My head was tilted to one side, my eyes half-closed. "'I was listening to the silence of the house. "'Yes, about mouse-sized,' Lockwood admitted. "'Suppose it might have been a vole. "'I expect a cat got it or something.' So, possibly not part of our case, then, if it was a mouse? Probably not. Beyond the frosted panes in the interior of the house, I spied a movement, something shifting in the hall's black depths. Here we go, I said. She's coming. Remember what I said. Lockwood bent his knees and picked up the duffel bag beside his feet. We both moved back a little, preparing pleasant, respectful smiles. We waited. Nothing happened. The door stayed shut. There was no one there. As Lockwood opened his mouth to speak, we heard footsteps behind us on the path. "'I'm so sorry!' The woman emerging from the mists had been walking slowly, but as we turned, she accelerated into a token little trot. "'So sorry!' she repeated. "'I was delayed. I didn't think you'd be so prompt.' she climbed the steps, a short, well-padded individual with a round face expanding into middle age. Her straight, ash-blonde hair was pulled back in a no-nonsense manner by clips above her ears. She wore a long black skirt, a crisp white shirt, and an enormous wool cardigan with sagging pockets at the sides. She carried a thin folder in one hand. "'Mrs. Hope,' I said. "'Good evening, madam.' My name is Lucy Carlyle, and this is Anthony Lockwood of Lockwood & Company. We've come about your call. The woman halted on the topmost step but one and regarded us with wide gray eyes in which all the usual emotions figured. Distrust, resentment, uncertainty, and dread. They were all there. They come standard in our profession, so we didn't take it personally. Her gaze darted back and forth between us taking in our neat clothes and carefully brushed hair, the polished rapiers glittering at our belts, the heavy bags we carried. It lingered long on our faces. She made no move to go past us to the door of the house. Her free hand was thrust deep into the pocket of her cardigan, forcing the fabric down. "'Just the two of you?' she said at last. "'Just us,' I said. "'You're very young.' Lockwood ignited his smile. Its warmth lit up the evening. "'That's the idea, Mrs. Hope. That's the way it has to be.' "'Actually, I'm not Mrs. Hope.' Her own wan smile, summoned in involuntary response to Lockwood's, flickered flickered across her face and vanished, leaving anxiety behind. "'I'm her daughter, Susie Martin. I'm afraid Mother isn't coming.' "'But we arranged to meet her,' I said. "'She was going to show us around the house.' I know. The woman looked down at her smart black shoes. I'm afraid she's no longer willing to set foot here. The circumstances of father's death were horrible enough, but recently the nightly disturbances have been getting too persistent. Last night was especially bad, and mother decided she'd had enough. She's staying with me now. We'll have to sell, but obviously we can't do that until the house is made safe her eyes narrowed slightly. "'Which is why you're here.' "'Excuse me, but shouldn't you have a supervisor? "'I thought an adult always had to be present in an investigation. "'Exactly how old are you?' "'Old enough and young enough,' Lockwood said, smiling. "'The perfect age.' "'Strictly speaking, madam,' I added. "'The law states that an adult is only required "'if the operatives are undergoing training.' It's true that some of the bigger agencies always use supervisors, but that's their private policy. We're fully qualified and independent, and we don't find it necessary. In our experience, Lockwood said sweetly, adults just get in the way. But of course we do have our licenses here, if you'd like to see them. The woman ran a hand across the smooth surface of her neat blonde hair. No, no, that won't be necessary. "'Since Mother clearly wanted you, I'm sure it will be fine.' Her voice was neutral and uncertain. There was a brief silence. "'Thank you, Madam.' I glanced back toward the quiet, waiting door. "'There's just one other thing. Is there someone else at home?' When we rang the bell, I thought... Her eyes rose rapidly, met mine. "'No, that's quite impossible. I have the only key.' "'I see. I must have been mistaken.' "'Well, I won't delay you,' Mrs. Martin said. "'Mother's filled out the form you sent her.' "'She held out the manila folder. "'She hopes it will be useful.' "'I'm sure it will.' "'Lockwood tucked it somewhere inside his coat. "'Thank you very much. "'Well, we'd better get started. "'Tell your mother we'll be in touch in the morning.' "'The woman handed him a ring of keys. "'Somewhere on the road a car horn blared "'to be answered by another.' There was plenty of time until curfew, but night was falling and people were growing antsy. They wanted to get home. Soon there'd be nothing moving in the London streets but trails of mist and twisting moonbeams. Or nothing, at least, that any adult could clearly see. Susie Martin was conscious of this, too. She raised her shoulders, pulled her cardigan tight. Well, I'd better be going. I suppose I should wish you luck. She looked away. So very young. How terrible that the world has come to this. Good night, Mrs. Martin, Lockwood said. Without reply, she pattered down the steps. In a few seconds, she had vanished among the mists and laurels in the direction of the road. She's not happy, I said. I think we'll be off the case tomorrow morning. Better get it solved tonight, then, Lockwood said. Ready? I patted the hilt of my rapier. Ready. He grinned at me, stepped up to the door, and with a magician's flourish, turned the key in the lock. When entering a house occupied by a visitor, it's always best to get in quick. That's one of the first rules you learn. Never hesitate. Never linger on the threshold. Why? Because for those few seconds, it's not too late. You stand there in the doorway with the fresh air on your back and the darkness up ahead and you'd be an idiot if you didn't want to turn and run. And as soon as you acknowledge that your willpower starts draining away through your boots and the terror starts building in your chest and bang, that's it. You're compromised before you begin. Lockwood and I both knew this so we didn't hang around. We slipped straight through, put down our bags and shut the door softly behind us. Then we stood quite still with our backs against it, watching and listening, side by side. The hall of the house, lately occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Hope, was long and relatively narrow, though the high ceiling made it seem quite large. The floor was tiled in black and white marble squares, set diagonally, and the walls were palely papered. Halfway along, a steep staircase rose into shadows. The hall kinked around this to the left, and continued into a void of black. Doorways opened on either side, gaping and choked in darkness. All of which could have been nicely illuminated if we'd turned on the lights, of course. And there was a switch on the wall right there. But we didn't attempt to use it. You see, a second rule you learn is this. Electricity interferes. It dulls the senses and makes you weak and stupid. It's much better to watch and listen in the dark. It's good to have that fear. We stood in silence, doing what we do. I listened. Lockwood watched. It was cold in the house. The air had that musty, slightly sour smell you get in every unloved place. I leaned in close to Lockwood. No heating, I whispered. "Mm Mm-hmm. Something else, too, you think? Mm Mm-hmm. As my eyes grew used to the dark, I saw more details. Beneath the curl of the banister was a little polished table, on which sat a china bowl of potpourri. There were pictures on the wall, mostly faded posters of old-time musicals, and photographs of rolling hills and gentle seas. All pretty innocuous. In fact, it wasn't at all an ugly hallway. In bright sunlight, it might have looked quite pleasant. But not so much now with the last light from the door panes stretching out like skewed coffins on the floor in front of us, and with our shadows neatly framed inside them, and with the manner of old Mr. Hope's death in this very place hanging heavy on our minds. I breathed hard to calm myself and shut out morbid thoughts. Then I closed my eyes against the taunting darkness and listened. Listened. Halls, landings, and staircases are the arteries and airways of any building. It's here that everything is channeled. You get echoes of things currently going on in all the connecting rooms. Sometimes you also get other noises that, strictly speaking, ought not to be there at all. Echoes of the past. Echoes of hidden things. This was one such time. I opened my eyes, picked up my bag, and walked slowly down the hall toward the stairs. Lockwood was already standing by the little polished table beneath the banister. His face shone dimly in the light from the door. "'Heard something?' he said. "'Yep.' "'What?' "'A little knocking sound. Comes and goes. It's very faint, and I can't tell where it's coming from. But it'll get stronger. It's scarcely dark yet. "'What about you?' He pointed at the bottom of the steps. "'You remember what happened to Mr. Hope, of course?' "'Fell down the stairs and broke his neck. "'Exactly. "'Well, there's a tremendous residual death glow right here, "'still lingering three months after he died. "'I should have brought my sunglasses, it's so bright. "'So what Mrs. Hope told George on the phone stacks up. "'Her husband tripped and tumbled down and hit the ground hard. "'He glanced up the shadowy stairwell. "'Long, steep flight.' Nasty way to go. I bent low, squinting at the floor in the half-dark. Yeah, look how the tiles have cracked. He must have fallen with tremendous ffft. Two sharp crashes sounded on the stairs. Air moved violently against my face. Before I could react, something large, soft, and horribly heavy landed precisely where I stood. The impact of it jarred my teeth. I jumped back. "'ripping my rapier from my belt. "'I stood against the wall, weapon raised and shaking, "'heart clawing at my chest, eyes staring wildly side to side. "'Nothing. "'The stairs were empty. "'No broken body sprawled lifeless on the floor. "'Lockwood leaned casually against the banister. "'It was too dark to be certain, but I swear he'd raised an eyebrow. "'He hadn't heard a thing.' You all right, Lucy? I breathed hard. No, I just got the echo of Mr. Hope's last fall. It was very loud and very real. It was like he'd landed right on top of me. Don't laugh, it's not funny. Sorry. Well, something's stirring early tonight. It's going to get interesting later. What time is it? Having a watch with a luminous dial is my third recommended rule. It's best if it can also withstand sudden drops in temperature and strong ectoplasmic shock. Not yet five, I said. Fine. Lockwood's teeth aren't quite as luminous as my watch, but when he grins, it's close. Plenty of time for a cup of tea. Then we find ourselves a ghost. And that's the end of chapter one of The Screaming Staircase. If you like that, I have that here at the FMAS Library, and you can borrow it. Okay, This is Vampire Plagues, London, 1850, by Sebastian Rook. Starts with Chapter 1. It says it's London, May, 1850. London's docks were alive with the bustle of a day's end. Ships crowded together. So many, you could barely see the dark water between them. Their masts, a forest of tall, thin trees. Across the river, the Tower of London shone red in the light of the setting sun. The sailors and dock hands, busy about the boats, were painted red and black with stripes of sunset. Jack Harkett lurked beside a pile of weathered tea crates from a Calcutta merchant ship. He was a thin, wiry boy with dark brown hair and blue eyes. London's docks had been his home for all of his 12 years. He loved the exotic scents of spices from far off places, the familiar smell of ship's tar, and even the sour stench of the rank river mud when the tide was low. But most of all, he loved the opportunities that the docks presented. One such opportunity was heading his way now. A gentleman in a frock coat and top hat was escorting a lady through the hustle and bustle of the dockside. The elegant couple picked their way through the crowd around the crates and over the piles of horse dung. They clearly were not used to this place. Perhaps they were meeting someone or maybe the man had an interest in a cargo somewhere. Jack darted forward. Meeting a ship, sir, he asked with a bright smile. Show you where? The man looked Jack up and down and wrinkled his nose. The woman just glared at him. Neither had any time for shabby dockside urchins. "'I think not,' the man replied stiffly. They walked off, and the man pressed one hand against his hip pocket to check that his wallet was still there. Unfortunately, this simply served to show Jack exactly where the wallet was kept. He shrugged. He had tried the polite way. He always tried at first. But he had an empty stomach to fill. And if politeness didn't work, well... There were other ways. Jack trailed the couple, drawing closer to them bit by bit. They were ten feet away when two youths cut in front of him, blocking the man from view. They were both much larger than Jack, and he knew better than to interfere. They knew exactly what he was up to. One of them scowled hard at him to keep him away. The other brushed against the man and apologized. The gentleman nodded and kept walking with his lady. "'Jack caught a brief glimpse of the man's wallet "'disappearing into the youth's pocket. "'His face fell. "'The youth who had been scowling at him grinned. "'Here you are, squirt,' he said, tossing Jack a penny. "'Then he and his partner in crime melted away into the crowd. "'Jack snatched the penny from the air. "'It wasn't as much as he had hoped for, "'but it meant he could put something in his stomach. "'Everyone looked out for themselves around the docks.' but nobody let anyone else starve. And that was pretty much how all of Jack's days went. He spent the penny on a meat pie from a stall at the riverside. The sun was just a sliver on the horizon now. Soon there would be no light to navigate, and those ships that hadn't quite made it to port would be dropping anchor in the river to wait for daylight. But one more was coming in, just catching the tide before it turned. Jack sat on a post as he finished his pie and watched idly. It was a three-master, probably from India, America, or even Australia. Jack knew that London in the year 1850 was the heart of a vast empire that stretched around the world. He had lived all his life here, but his imagination loved to roam. One day, he promised himself he would visit those exotic places. The ship reached the dockside just as the sun finally vanished, Suddenly, a great black cloud seemed to billow up from the deck. But it wasn't smoke or fog. It was something else. Something animal. It swooped straight at Jack, and he fell backward off the post with a yell. Black creatures, large as crows, swarmed only feet overhead. They were bats, hundreds of them, the largest he had ever seen. For a moment, the dark, seething mass hovered in the night sky. Then the bats peeled off in every direction, vanishing down the alleys and lanes of the docks. Some of them disappeared, dispersed across the river, flying toward the tower and the mighty dome of St. Paul's. Jack watched them go, then turned wonderingly back to the ship. Surely it had come from some uncharted continent, some far-off island jungle. Great explorers must have penetrated to the interior of a hostile land, and brought back extraordinary outlandish creatures and possibly strange treasures, Jack rubbed his hands together in the chilly night air and made his way to where the ship was docking. Now that the sun was gone, the ship was just a hulking shape in the gloom, barely lit by the shoreside lanterns. Dockers stood on the quay, ready to take ready to take the lines as it drew alongside. Jack loitered in the shadows of a warehouse and watched. He knew better than to let himself be seen. Incoming ships were easy targets, and the dockers would probably chase him off if they saw him. The harbormaster paced up and down on the quayside as the dockers made the ship fast. At this time of day, he should have been on his way home. He wouldn't have been expecting a last ship to come in. The gangplank came down, a wooden bridge up into the darkness of the deck. The harbormaster and the shore crew hurried on board. Jack made himself comfortable. He knew there would be forms to fill out and customs procedures to go through. It would take a while, but eventually he would be able to sneak on board and explore. But in less than a minute, there were shouts of surprise in the darkness, and the men came hurrying back down the gangplank. They had the purposeful look of people wanting to run, but trying hard not to. Jack heard someone mutter, "'Ain't natural!' as he hurried by. Jack stared at them as they hastened away in the gloom. Then he looked back at the ship. It sat by the quayside, a still, silent shape. Too still. Too silent. There was no sound of sailors calling to one another. No footsteps echoing on the wooden decks, and strangest of all, no hurry to unload the cargo. Jack frowned and took a step forward, then stopped as a figure appeared at the top of the gangplank. But this was no sailor, no dockhand. It was a broad, heavy man, a gentleman, judging by his dress. He wore a long black coat with a fur collar and a polished black stovepipe hat. In one hand, he carried a silver-topped cane. He looked as if he had just come from the theater in the West End, not the other side of the world. He paused for a moment to adjust his cravat, then set off down the gangplank, swinging his cane. He walked right past Jack and into the night. The shadows of the docks swallowed him up as if they were welcoming him home. Jack shivered. He didn't know why. This wasn't the first ship to dock at night in London. The man was not the first well-dressed gent to come ashore. But something here was wrong. The docks were usually full of life and energy, even after dark. But something about this ship seemed to have sucked the, sucked the energy away. Jack took a deep breath. He had set himself the challenge of going on board the ship, and that was what he would do. If his nerve failed him, he would never survive in London. He slipped from the shadows when another movement at the top of the gangplank sent him scurrying back to his hiding place. A boy stepped out into the light from the shore and edged hesitantly down to the dockside. Jack let out a sigh of relief. The boy could not have been much older than Jack himself. Unlike the man, he really did look as if he had been on a voyage. He was thin, his fair hair was tangled and matted, and his clothes were grimy and rumpled like Jack's own. Jack guessed he was a cabin boy or a sailor's son. Whoever he was, Jack felt much more inclined to talk to him than to the man in black. Jack let him approach, then stepped out from his hiding place. "'Evening,' he said cheerily. "'To Jack's surprise, the boy stared at him in horror for a second, then fled. "'Hey!' Jack called. "'He threw up his hands in disgust and turned back to the ship. "'Then he thought again. "'Someone or something on that ship had scared off the harbor master and dockers. "'Whatever it was, it surely couldn't have been that boy. "'And it might still be on board.' Jack had no desire to tangle with someone, or something, that could chase off a gang of dockers, but another boy he could handle. He turned again and began to give chase. The other boy had a strange, shambling run, as if his legs were seizing up through disuse. Jack's longer legs quickly ate up the distance between them. The boy had reached the deep, dark lane between two brick warehouses that rose up on either side. This part of the docks was used only for storage, and there was no one else around. Occasional lanterns dispersed the gloom, and, as the boy approached each light, his shadow would swell and dance like a giant against the sheer brick walls. Then it shrank again as he ran on past. The boy stopped for a moment and bent over with his hands on his knees, drawing deep breaths. He looked up, saw Jack approaching, and pelted away again, this time down a side alley. Jack scowled, then grinned and slowed to a casual walk. He waited at the entrance to the alley with his arms folded. The boy had already discovered it was a dead end. He stood with his back pressed to the wall and stared at Jack. "'You won't have me,' he said. His voice had a faint tremor in it, as if he were putting every ounce of energy into sounding brave. "'You won't have me!' "'That's as well, because I don't want you,' Jack retorted. "'What was you thinking, taking off like that?' "'I had to get away,' the boy mumbled. "'He was like a trapped animal, glancing up and down and around, "'desperate to find a way out. "'Only half his mind was on what he was saying. "'Had to get away? Been there so long?' "'You're touched in the head,' Jack said sadly.' This close, he could see he had been wrong about who the boy was. The clothes were ragged, but under the dirt, Jack could see what had once been a smart flannel suit. And his voice was cultured. At any other time, Jack would have thought him a snob and had nothing more to do with him. But now his instincts as a dock dweller were taking over. It was the same instinct that had made the older boy throw him a penny earlier on. You looked after other unfortunates like yourself. "'Maybe I should take you back,' he began. "'No!' the boy screamed. "'His eyes were wide and his mouth gaped. "'Jack recognized real terror. "'Bully you, did he?' he asked quietly. "'That fancy gent in the black coat?' "'Bully me,' the boy's voice was bitter. "'No, he never found me. I was too clever.' "'Well, good on you,' Jack studied the boy. He couldn't just leave him here. Well, if you're not going back to the ship... Bedford Square. The boy drew himself up. I need to get to Bedford Square urgently. That's where I live. Can you show me the way? That up west, then? Jack asked. Bloomsbury. The boy pronounced it Bloomsbury. I see. Bloomsbury was off his usual patch, but Jack knew how to find it. He scratched his head. If someone in a place like that was interested in this boy, there might even be a reward in it for him. Bloomsbury it is. Come on, we'll go and... The boy's knees began to fold. Jack caught him just in time and gently set him back on his feet. He was light as a feather, and under the remains of the coat, Jack could feel his ribs. "'You're famished, aren't you?' Jack remarked. "'The boy nodded weakly. "'I haven't had much to eat. "'Had to eat what I could. "'For weeks. "'Then that's the first thing we'll change. "'You come with me and tell me all about it.' "'Jack led the boy out of the alley. "'You got a name?' he asked. "'Benedict Cole.' "'The boy smiled weakly. "'Ben to my friend's.' I'm Jack. To everyone as knows me, Jack replied. He was careful to walk slowly. He didn't want Ben to collapse again. I don't like these alleys, Ben commented. His eyes darted up into the dark. Not enough light. Don't you worry about the dark, Jack told him. I've been around long enough to look after us both. You haven't seen what I've seen, Ben said. With such gloomy finality that Jack gave up trying to cheer him. The hubbub of a crowded pub could be heard ahead. As they turned the next corner, the friendly flicker of gaslights beckoned to them. Ben's pace quickened. And then they were in the thick of it, caught up in the usual jostle of dock workers in the evening, coming and going to the pub, laughing and chattering. After the echoing silence of the warehouses, it was a welcome return to warmth and humanity. "'Feeling better?' Jack asked Ben. Ben nodded. "'And I'm looking forward to that food,' he replied with a shy eagerness. "'I bet you are,' Jack grinned. "'And no more dark, eh?' "'Oh, they can still see you.' Ben, who for just a moment had sounded like a normal boy looking forward to a meal, once again sounded terrified. "'When it's night, they can always see you. Look!' clutched at Jack's arm and pointed upward. Jack followed his finger. He was looking at the moon and a small black shape that flitted across it. Just a bat, Jack said carelessly. Ben stared up for a few heartbeats more. Then slowly he relaxed. Yes, he said. I imagine so. Not like those ones that came off the boat, Jack added. Huge, great things they were, Ben groaned. Oh, no. They're awake. They're in London. Didn't you see him? I was too busy hiding from them. No, I... I didn't see them wake up. Ben looked close to tears. I was hoping I could... Before they... Oh, never mind. Hoping you could do what? Asked Jack curiously. I was hoping I could warn someone. Do something Ben replied but it's too late now so what's wrong with them Jack queried they got a disease or something Ben looked at him oddly a disease he repeated yes you could say that the Admiral Nelson was a cheerful Riverside Inn loud bursts of laughter and snatches of singing spilled out into the cool night air Nelson himself, one-eyed and one-armed, immaculate in his admiral's uniform, looked down from the painted sign that swung over the door. Ben hesitated as they approached. It looks very, um, crowded, he said. We're not going in, Jack said. Going in takes money, which I'm guessing you don't have. I'm afraid you're right. Suddenly Ben's eyebrows shot up. Are you going to steal food? Jack had to laugh. Not if I know what's good for me. Come on. He led Ben around to the back of the inn, secretly pleased about the state of Ben's clothes. Had they been clean and smart, such a well-dressed lad would have stood out for a mile. A large, round woman had come out of the back door with a tray of scraps, which she flung onto the rubbish heap. Jack nudged Ben. Look small, he said big eyes, like this. He widened his eyes, bit his lip, and imagined himself to be even scrawnier than his companion. Then he called, Evening, Molly. The woman jumped. Why, look who it is. Out here on the rat heap, the cheekiest rat of them all. How are you, Jack? Jack put on his best smile. This was all part of the ritual. "'Molly was one of the many women who had cared for him when he was little. "'It was the closest he came to any kind of family. "'I was wondering,' he began. "'Well, do us a favor and wander somewheres else, then,' Molly retorted. "'I'm busy, and—hello, who's this?' "'Ben had come out of the shadows. "'Jack was pleased to see the boy following his advice and looking pitiable, "'until he realized that that was just how Ben looked naturally.' absolutely famished. "'This is,' Jack began. "'A young lad at death's door!' Molly exclaimed. "'You two wait here.' She went back in and reappeared a moment later with a couple of bundles. "'Bit of bread, pie, some potatoes. Best I can do before Bill notices and docks me pay.' Jack grinned. Ben stared at the the bundles as if they had come down from heaven. "'Thanks, Molly.' seeing you, Jack said. He put a friendly hand on Ben's shoulder and led him away. They found a quiet courtyard where they sat on a low wall and Ben tore his bundle open. He picked up the hunk of bread and buried his face in it, his jaw working to get it all down. Jack had to pull it gently away from him. Oy, not so fast. i seen people eat after being starving. They wolf sit down and then they brings it all back up again. Easy does it, It was easier for Jack. The pie he had bought earlier was still warm inside him. He fed the meal to Ben bit by bit, letting the boy take it in slowly, giving his stomach time to adjust to having food in it once again. At one point, Ben sniffled, and Jack realized that the other boy was crying softly. What is it? he asked gently. It's... it's nothing. For a moment, Ben looked furious that Jack had seen him crying. He took a bite out of a potato. It's so good to be home and to be eating. He gave a bashful smile. Thank you for all your help. You know, I haven't always been a starving stowaway. I guessed that, Jack said. It was the first time Ben had mentioned being a stowaway at all, but Jack had guessed that, too. What got you from Bedford Square to here? Ben sighed. Have you heard of Harrison Cole? Jack shook his head. Harrison Cole is an anthropologist. He studies peoples and cultures, especially ancient civilizations. And he's... He was my father, Ben explained. Jack nodded and remained quiet. It was best to let Ben talk. Unfortunately, Ben seemed to have dried up. The boys stared down at the cobblestones for so long... The Jack began to feel uncomfortable. He drew breath to say something, but suddenly Ben began to speak again. And his partner, Edwin Sherwood, was an archaeologist. He was always looking for ancient cities. They're famous, Cole and Sherwood. They were old friends and they always traveled together with Sir Donald Finlay. His tone grew dark once more. You've seen Sir Donald "'The man in the coat?' "'The same,' Ben agreed. "'Is he another anthropo inquired Jack. "'Anthropologist?' "'No, he's a biologist. He studies animals,' Ben explained. "'The three of them worked together for years,' he continued. "'They've been all over the world, exploring and investigating, finding new things. "'As soon as Emily and I were old enough, we went with them.' "'Who's Emily?' asked Jack. Ben blinked, as if surprised he had left out that detail. Emily is my sister. She's a year older than me. She'll be here in London now, I expect. She came down with a fever just as we were about to leave on our last journey, and so she had to stay behind. She was frightfully disappointed, but our housekeeper will have looked after her. I promised to keep a journal so that she could read it when we got got back. He patted his pocket and pulled out a battered cardboard-bound notebook. It has a lot more in it than she expected, he said thoughtfully. Jack was reminded of his ambitions for traveling the world. This rich boy and his sister had already done it, and they hadn't even had to ask. "Good of your old man to take you," he commented wistfully. "Our mother died when we were very little," Ben explained. Father could never bear to leave us behind. Anyway, our latest expedition was to Mexico. We left in January. He lapsed into silence again. Did you find anything? Jack prompted. Oh, yes. Another silence. What was it? Jack asked after a moment. Ben turned his head slowly to look at Jack with tormented eyes. Hell, he whispered. And that was chapter one of Vampire Plagues, London, 1850, by Sebastian Rook. If you'd like to read the rest, you can borrow it from me at the FMES Library. Um, Just send me an email or place a hold through our library catalog.